welcome to Undercommon Taste. This is a podcast where we create and discuss homebrew content for tabletop RPGs. Never bend the rules. You bend the rules a little bit, and then it's a slippery slope. I'm Ian Woodworth. I'm joined by my co-host James Daly. And today we are starting in to our planar deep dive of the bleak eternity of Gehenna, which is the plane of lawful neutral evil. Right. Now, again, those that know your biblical history and lore, Gehenna was the burn pit that the Romans used that Christ also used to describe the hellish afterlife that was possible. It wasn't quite hell, and neither is Gehenna, but that kind of gives you an idea of what we're going to be going for today. Yeah, from what I understand from the little bit of research I was able to do before the episode, the philosophical concepts of Gehenna in early Jewish practice formed the foundation for what became hell in Christian theology. Largely, yes. So there's a couple different things. You have Gehenna, like I said, was largely a burn pit for the Roman cities, particularly near Jerusalem and Judea, which became Palestine. Gehenna is actually a physical location. location. Correct. It is the Valley of Hinnom, which is, I think, south and east of Jerusalem. That sounds correct. I believe that's correct. Now, the other part that a lot of Christian lore, you know, the whole Lake of Fire thing, that actually comes from the end of Revelation. And that's after the war in heaven, there's the fall. You have the whole tribulation or whatever. You have the thousand years of peace. And then there's actually a second uprising after the second thousand years of peace when Christ returns. And then all the demons and devils are thrown into, quote, the Lake of Fire. And after that, they, the timeline kind of ends. I don't think everything's supposed to end. They just kind of stop writing, kind of like the Mayan calendar. It's like, eh, we're done for now type thing. But that's where that whole, you know, pitchfork Lake of Fire thing comes from. That doesn't really follow so much in Jewish lore, but that's getting into religious discussions, which would be a yeah. completely different podcast. Yes, it would. <laughs> uh, as far as I was able to understand from what little bit I read, the concept of Gehenna is the wicked souls get cast into Gehenna for a period of what is basically a Jewish calendar year. And at the end of that year, through their trials and tribulations, they are either scoured clean and allowed to pass on to wait for the, what is it, the second world or whatever. Yeah, the new kingdom. The new kingdom, thank you. Or they are completely destroyed because they are beyond redemption. Redemption. That sounds close to right. And again, it depends on which version of the Bible you have because it does change. And King James is not the end-all be-all. It also leads into the Catholic version of a purgatory where you go through and you wait and you have this intermediary and you have to scour your soul of sin and there's a purification process before you can reach paradise in one form or another. But again, completely different podcast. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. All right, so talking in D&D terms, Gehenna sits between Bator the Nine Hells and the Grey Waste of Hades. And I mean, again, going that Gehenna itself was basically a dump pile. So again, you've got the burning, you've got a waste pit. That thematically fits perfectly. Yeah. And in terms of pure landmass, Gehenna is the smallest of the outer planes, primarily because it is the only one that has a finite amount of landmass. They're still honking huge, 
We're talking hundreds of thousands of miles across, but it's just these four massive earth moats that are floating in an infinite void. That sounds very bleak. <laughs> it is. I mean, it's supposed to be. Right. I mean, look where it is. It's sitting at the bottom of the lower plains. It's, <laughs> it's not supposed to be a happy place, James. It's not happy fun time? No. Damn. I want a refund. <laughs> so the way that I understand it is they are more or less four sort of football-shaped earth moats that have a massive volcano at the top of them. The entire upper half is just a giant volcano. That is the... Now, is it four, four football-shaped, or is it four halves of a football smooshed together? Because I thought there was four moats and two of them were smashed together making two pairs. Or is it four pairs? As far as I can tell, it is four individual moats that okay. just happen to be close together. Okay. That makes more sense. And there are lots of smaller earth moats that float around and smash into each other. Because and... there's chunky rocks and that's how you do. That, yeah, that's just how you do. It is explicitly mentioned that there's nothing flat in Gehenna. Everything is a slope. In second edition, it says that the slopes range from 5 to 80 degrees. And that's all of your, quote, scalable areas. All the areas where you're actually able to just walk. Whereas there are other locations where you have sheer and past sheer cliff faces. So this is where your parents and grandparents went to school because it was uphill both ways. Yeah. <laughs> Except I don't think there's any snow here. There might be. There is in the fourth layer because oh. that volcano is dead. Okay, there you go. So that one, that's where school was located, right there. Yeah. Uphills both ways in the snow. In the acidic snow, yes. I went to school in Gehenna. I had to walk every day. <laughs> Boy, that's that's an existence for you. That play yard time would Ooh, be. buddy, Ooh, yeah. We'll get there. <laughs> yeah, get your Arcanoloth school marm. Oh, my. Yeah, that, that's bad times for everybody, <laughs> including the school marm. Yeah. And one of the interesting things about these moats is that if you fall off of one, you end up just tumbling off into the void and you just end up falling through the infinite void for the rest of eternity. Because, you know, that's how you do. Yeah, that's the infinite portion of the plane. Right. Because all of these planes are supposed to be infinite. And they're supposed to have that divinely morphic infinite span feel. Right. And there's suggestion that there might be something lingering out in that infinite void around these Earth moats. It's a big hungry maw. Nothing has ever come back to say. It's because it's a big hungry maw. This makes me wonder about the overall gravity on these moats because again the concept that if you can one fall off of these things at some point and then two there's not enough gravity to pull you back in so you just float off forever and again they do say everything's supposed to be these slopes and so you think gravity would pull you towards the center as a normal force but then can you actually just slip off the moat and into a nothingness i mean it seems to hint at that it would suggest if you're wanting to actually do the science thing and apply real world physics to this it would seem like there is a massive something underneath these moats because it does have gravity it does pull you in a definitive direction that is down down Right. But I'm wondering, like, if it's more like the moon, so where you could jump and then kind of like, no, 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 you know, and kind of have that where it's not going to suck you in like, you know, the earth. So if you jump off a cliff here, you're down towards the center, where if you jumped off a cliff in Gehenna, you just might slip off into the nether. According to the third edition manual of the planes, it does have normal gravity. Okay. It's just that the gravity isn't oriented to the bodies. 
it's oriented to a point in the plane. Okay. So I wonder how easy or difficult it would be to slip or push someone off of one of these modes. Like how very how easy. exile somebody. Okay. Very easy. So, so you could very easily yeet an enemy into the nether. And that is exactly why the creatures who live here don't go on the outer slopes if they don't have to. Good reason. <laughs> yeah. Because like I said, these moats, while they are finite in size, they are still hundreds of thousands of miles across. Right. So these are planetary sized chunks of volcano that are just floating in the void. Just watch the edge and you'll be fine. And actually, because of the nature of the plane, because the plane itself is very destruction oriented, it is very vindictive almost. You take more damage than normal if you fall. Right. In second edition, it was if you slip and fall down a slope, you take one point of damage per foot you fall. That's brutal. In third edition, you get to make a climb check to try and catch yourself if you fall. And the difficulty varied depending on the slope. So if it was a scalable slope, it was like a DC 10. But if you're falling off of, you know, a near sheer something, it became, I think it was a DC 30. Oh, wow. And then if you're like falling off of a cliff. And you have to try and catch yourself before you actually fall off the cliff. It was like a DC 35 or a DC 40. It was insane. Yeah, that is crazy. And again, that we had talked about before with the planes. Really, the more evil planes and chaotic planes tend to be harsher towards petitioners and the denizens where, I don't want to say it punishes, but it seeks to harm or hurt innately the people there where generally the lawful and the good planes tend to want to grow and promote life and growth so again this is a neutral evil plane slightly evil again more neutral eh, back and forth plane it's kind of like australia the plane wants to kill you kind of like in australia everything everything there wants to kill you in australia the plants the animals the heat the weather the people if you badmouth them it's just a rough place to be you know <laughs> and this is why james can't go to australia exactly <laughs> and then to wrap up the third edition rules is if you fail that climb check and you fall, you fall 10d10 plus 100 feet and you just automatically take 10d6 bludgeoning damage. That is bad. This reminds me of my paladin dwarf I had in one of your campaigns. <laughs> which, yes. you know, we had a jailbreak escape or it was a little one-off. We had some player one characters and I had this paladin dwarf who for the life of him could not walk on rock. Anytime he walked on rock, he'd trip and fall and just stumble. And it, he was the clumsiest character I've ever played. The Dougal Copperpot, he was great. He would last all of 30 seconds on this planet. It was terrible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and because at the end, the party actually made it out of the mountain. Yes. They found a tunnel and made it out onto the slope of the mountain. And then as soon as you got out, I had you guys make a climb check to go down the face of the mountain. And you rolled a natural one. Yes, I did. I tripped and fell. And you just tripped and and face planted. (laughs) You survived. I think you ended up at one hit point. Was it at one hit point or did I stabilize after hitting zero? I think you ended up at one hit point at the bottom of the mountain. Yeah. (laughs) that was a wonderfully terrible character and i'm just gonna leave him there at the bottom of the mountain and i hope he gets better because (laughs) yeah he needs some like hobnailed shoes or something yeah all right so like with carceri and like with some of the other planes like some of the layers of the abyss there is no sun in the sky there is no external source of illumination here in Gehenna. All of the illumination that you get comes from all of the magma flowing across the plane from these four 
well, I guess three functional mega volcanoes. So lighting wise, this is kind of going to look like the planet Mustafar from Revenge of the yeah. Sith, you know, where Anakin gets all marshmallowed. It's going to look like that scene there. Yeah. You are my brother, Anakin. And the glow of this magma, that's the only illumination that can actually pierce the darkness in the void. Any other source of illumination, so like a magical light spell, once you get so far away from terra firma, it just disappears. You can't spot it from the actual moat. Right. And it does the same thing to sound. So once you get past a certain point, you can't hear anything. Gotcha. So here, you know, your creatures with dark vision, things like that will do fairly well, which is just about everybody except humans and dragonborns in fifth edition. That's the halflings. Topic. And halflings, yeah. As a DM, something I would try to homebrew would maybe if you could get a lantern made out of the magma. So maybe like there's a container that can hold a set amount that will last 30 minutes, an hour, or whatever, and that you could with a DC check, because I mean, you know, you're obviously going to have to dip this into a pool of magma to recharge, but you'd have a chance to recharge it somehow. And that way you could carry this magma light with you. This would be a homebrew thing I would try to fashion or do. And I think that would be within the spirit of the rules of this plan, I believe. That said, getting those kinds of things, as we talk about, the people are very selfish. Everything is going to be very expensive. Everything is going to cost. There is absolutely no such thing as a free lunch on this plane. Not only is there not such a thing as a free lunch, but if you want to get something from a native creature on the plane, you have to demonstrate your ability to pay them before they will help you. Right. So not only is there no free lunch, but you have to prepay for your lunch. Yes. But we'll get that. I want to touch on your lantern idea. Okay. Yeah, that sounds like a great magic item, but that is a terrible way to travel because there are creatures that actually are able to function out in the darkness surrounding these earth moats that will just straight up eat you. Yeah, they're going to be drawn to the light. If you get out there and you'll never see them. You're going to be drawn to the light. But again, if you've got a human party in Gehenna, they're going to have to see somehow. And unless they've got, you know, magical vision in the darkness, they're going to need something. But there are ways to get from moat to moat within each of the quote unquote layers. Because each of these moats is considered an individual layer. layer. Okay. But there are a bunch of ways to just travel from one to another that don't involve just up and flying there. I mean, and to just reinforce it, you know, these moats are planet sized. Right. That's what I'm saying. I want to drive that home. So you don't even have to worry about traveling between moat to moat, but you might hit an area on one of these moats where you don't have a lava flow. So you're just going to have a patch of darkness to get through. And if you've got to do, you know, sloped planar travel on the same moat, you're going to want to see where you're going. Are you going to trip on a rock and fall off? Because it's all slopey slope. It's like walking down the stairs in the dark, dude. (laughs) Yeah. But what I'm saying is that your illumination is going to work just fine on the moat. Yes. It's if you try and get cutesy and fly up into the air, you're like, the wizard's going to cast fly on himself and go 80 feet up into the air to try and survey the landscape and get an idea of where he's going. Yeah, he'll be able to do that. Everyone on the ground is going to lose sight of him. Yes. And then the Slasreth is going to come along and eat him, and he's not going to come back down. You're just bitter because Magnus <laughs> uses fly speed to sway all your traps. You don't have to fly high, just like two feet off the ground just to hover. 
<laughs> that was spider climb, sir. Did I use spider climb on that one? Or you used spider climb because okay. you were only like fourth level. You didn't have fly yet. Gotcha. Yeah, that's my other thing. If I ever get a character with fly, I use my fly speed and just kind of hover because you can hover over most traps. <laughs> but yeah, no, you definitely wouldn't want to separate from the party here. Again, you do want to stay close. But again, you could use these to kind of move from place to place. But even if you are going to go up and try to scout from above, you'd see pockets of light. It'd be like looking at a city from an airplane. You'd see pockets of light, but you wouldn't be able to see much in the way of detail of anything, if at all. In the area where there was no light, it'd still be pitch black. See, the way that I understand it from what I'm reading is the terrain itself keeps this sort of dull glow from the magma, regardless of where you happen to be. Okay. You do still cast a shadow, and you can... In theory, hide someone in your shadow, or you can, if you wanted to get really tactical about combat here, you could position yourself in such a way that your target is in your shadow and therefore unable to see. You could actually inflict blindness purely by positioning. That's actually a great idea. I love that idea. The way I envision this would be kind of like Minecraft, where like when you're in your caves and then you get the glow from the magma pools when you're in the caves. And if you get too far back, you're gone. And there's enough slope and hills and stuff that that light obviously doesn't spread out far. So there's areas where it's going to be blocked by the terrain. And so, like I said, I did get very much this Minecraft feel mentally where it's going to be very dim and then the light is easily blocked in large patches unless you're following like a magma river or something like that well as i understand it the magma is very pervasive so you're just not getting those large areas where the magma isn't okay that's fair and again that comes down to dm choice at that point you know as you build up you can build your maps as you need again when we get to gehenna wizards and you know before that tsr didn't get into a whole lot of detail with this not like they had the other planes so they've left this one very open to imagination pretty much i haven't actually gone into the individual layers yet they may have reserved their world building for the individual layers as opposed to the plane as a whole okay but as a whole gehenna doesn't have a whole lot of subtlety it's basically what it says on the tin yeah you get what's on the box so whenever you're wanting to travel around in gehenna the easiest way to get into Gehenna, as with all of the lower planes, is the River Styx. So the River Styx does flow into the first layer of Kalos. And in this particular layer, because of the geography of the plane, where it's all of these very steep slopes and narrow canyons and all of this, you're just going to have a massive whitewater river just punching through the middle of this plane. I kind of want to see Caron on the front of this barge just sitting there, you know, just rocking it. <laughs> sitting there paddling with the scythe. <laughs> and the, uh, was it the Marinoloths, I think, or the boatmen? Yes. Ugoloths. And they actually are the ones that ply the river sticks. And so, yes, they are doing that. They are running their boats through. And because that. of their inherent knowledge of the river, they are able to safely do it. Because they've done it for eons. Yeah. And there are natives to the plane who are also able to do this. There are natives who will have a boat and will ferry you from one location to another on the plane along the river Styx. The good ones know where all of the major currents are and can go around them. And the rest sort of end up as little piles of debris and the 
eddies at the end of a set of cataracts. Or the bad ones sit there and leave you stranded and then charge you to get back. Or they may have their buddy who can help you out. You know, it's not, oh, no, we broke down. What? And then their quote, quote, friend can give you a ride for an extra fee, as it were. Um, oh, I would see them as charging you to get off the boat. Yeah, I could see that, too. But whenever you're wanting to travel between the layers in Gehenna, uh, you've got two major ways to do it. The first is by using magma bubbles. You find a larger pit of magma and the bubbles that come up whenever they come up and they pop open for that brief few seconds while they're popped open they form a portal between that layer and another layer about half of the time yeah that's a hard die roll you know what i'm not gonna drop and then where does it put you at does it drop you from the air into a land or does it like teleport you into another magma bubble on the other plane that's all up to the dm yeah see that's the rough it's not question. specified like if i was a dm i wouldn't do that. <laughs> yeah this is that oh shit we have to get out of here right now yeah that's when you resort to that right yeah no this is not the way you want to go the second option there are just deep pits that if you jump into one you'll end up in a chamber on another layer and they're usually very clearly marked as in this one is going to go to this layer this one is going to go to that layer because that is a very common way for the petitioners to get from layer to layer because they will bounce around in pursuit of power for whatever scheme that they happen to be working on at the time. That's really funny. So I know you've not played Elden Ring yet, but you've played Dark Souls, right? Some of the Dark Soul games? I briefly played the first one and decided that it wasn't for me. Okay. So Elden Ring kind of has a weird multiplayer, kind of like Dark Souls says, where it's kind of an MMO, but it's not. And so within Elden Ring, there are PvP notes or player notes that are all over the place and some of them are good advice and some of them are terrible they'll generally tell you like if there's going to be an ambush or something ahead but along a lot of cliffs there are certain areas where you can jump down and find things and they're like hey jump here for whatever and then there's a lot of cliffs like hey take a jump and if you jump at this point you're just jumping off the nether and instantly dying and so that's exactly what i'm picturing here where it's like yeah jump for portal do i trust this note or not <laughs> it's funny that you mentioned that because some of them are falsely marked. Exactly. And so it's like, do I trust this random note? And if you jump into them, you're just going to pass through this chamber and get jettisoned out into the infinite void. Woohoo. <laughs> or, you know, find, you know, the bottom 300 feet down for your one point of hit damage for each foot you fell. Yeah, that could be it. Yeah. You, know, you just fall a quarter mile and take 500 points of damage and splat. Actually, no, a quarter mile, that's a little over 1,200, 1,250, somewhere in there. Thereabouts, yeah. Yeah. So yeah, this is going to be Elden Ring Part 2 is definitely going to be set in Gehenna. (laughs) Because the lighting would be perfect, and then you've got the slopes, and so there's a bunch of stuff. You've got these weird notes you can't trust. I like it. George R.R. Martin, go ahead and write my check. I just wrote your next game. You can either write the check or finish the damn series. Right. You know what I'm talking about. Get it done. (laughs) All right, so... Let's go ahead and talk a little bit about magic in Gehenna. Magic in Gehenna is pretty straightforward. If it harms, if it damages, if it destroys, it's amplified. If it's something beneficial, it's hindered. I actually like the optional rule suggested in the 5e DMG for this. It's called Cruel Hindrance. And so if you cast a spell with a beneficial effect, including healing, you have to succeed on a DC 10 charisma save. If you fail that save, the spell fizzles 
the slot is spent, and the action is lost. I like that. And like I said, early third edition 3.5, I like the fact that sometimes your spells can fizzle. I think that is correct, and particularly with armor types and stuff like that. I'm coming around to like a more heavily armored mage. I really want to try that at some point. But I like that there's some things that, you know, sometimes your spells just go... Because we've all had that in life. <laughs> I've got this. And then it's like, you know, I'm having a Midas day. Everything I touch turns soft and brown instead of gold. Okay. <laughs> all right. So going into some of the specific schools that are affected in Gehenna. Uh, first off is conjuration, specifically summoning spells in the conjuration school. You can only summon creatures native to Gehenna. So it's kind of like in Arcadia. In Arcadia, you can only summon creatures that are native to Arcadia. This is even whenever you're using very powerful spells like Gate. You can't even use Gate to summon creatures from another plane to Gehenna. And whenever you summon a creature, you have to make a successful check to control them. In 2nd edition, you had to make a Spellcraft check or an Intelligence check at a minus 4 penalty. That'd be pretty close to disadvantage. Yeah, so that would basically be a Spellcaster ability check. Personally, I would do it as the DC is 10 plus the creature's challenge rating. That's fair. So the more powerful the creature is, the harder it is to control it. And then use the caster's spellcasting ability as the modifier? Yes, a spellcaster ability check. So it's going to be, if you're a wizard, it's going to be intelligence plus proficiency bonus. So yeah, you probably don't really want to cast anything much more than a... Anything higher than DC 15 is going to be... Yeah, if you summon a CR5 creature, you have to make a DC 15 caster ability check. No, it would be a DC 10 plus. 10 CR5 plus. Would be and so if it's a CR5, that would be a DC 15. Okay. I was already adding. I was thinking CR 15. That'd be a 25. That'd be about as high as you could expect that. Yeah. To reliably yeah. get. And that would be for a very high level. Yeah, that'd be extremely. But again, if you're summoning a CR 15 creature, that's probably level 20 plus already. So, And if you fail... The creature has free will and will do whatever it wants. Usually that means killing the summoner for the inconvenience of bringing it to wherever it is you're happening to be. Yeah, again, if it's native to Gehenna and it's not there, it's not there because it doesn't want to be there. Yeah, and because all of the petitioners in Gehenna are constantly scheming and maneuvering and manipulating and trying to achieve whatever their plot happens to be, specifically to the detriment of everyone else around them. Yes. I mean, if someone is doing something for the greater good, the petitioners of the plane will intentionally sabotage it for the pure self-aggrandizement of having torpedoed their plan. Right. This is all like a giant schoolyard brawl. I very much got a King of the Hill feel of this, which yeah. would actually be a great scenario to run on this, like the higher up on whatever plane you can get because everything's all sloped anyway. So maybe there is just like this weird giant political slash physical tribal King of the Hill match going in your alt and at the tops, you know, some horrible lich that will probably talk about later. <laughs> yeah. So with divination, as with Carcerai, diviners are generally reviled here in Gehenna because divination has a set of macabre requirements. And as such, only evil diviners ever go to Gehenna purely on principle. In Gehenna, a divination requires a death, specifically one that involves a lot of pain and cunning. So you first oh have to capture an enemy, then you have to stake them out, and then you read the divination from their entrails, preferably while they're still alive. 
It's like the old British drawing and quartering. Yeah. Kind of, yeah. And because of the nature of the plane, divinations pertaining to the plane of Gehenna are rarely going to be positive to begin with. Yeah, there's that. And combining getting bad news on top of everything else that this diviner <laughs> has going on, they're going to get real unpopular real quick. Real fast, yeah. This is why we don't talk about Bruno and Gehenna. Yeah. Next up is the enchantment school, specifically with charm spells. So enchantment spells, specifically those which charm or dominate, don't work very well in Gehenna. According to the second edition book, enchantment spells of fifth level and higher simply don't work. And I thought that was an interesting caveat because lower level charm spells do. Well, I think it's the amount of control where everything in Gehenna is so fiercely individualized. Again, it's all about the person. And again, that's one of the things. If a petitioner's on Gehenna, it's largely because they want to be there. They're not stuck here. It's what fits them. And that whole self-sufficient, but very, I don't use the term toxic, though it's very correct. It's not the word I'm looking for. Very, uh, I can't think of the word I want. But again, it is you are taking care of yourself and only yourself at the expense of everything else. So you are so self-contained and so mindful of what's going to benefit you that I think that kind of mind control to wrest that sense of freedom from someone is going to be lesser because the people that are here are going to hold on to that so strongly. It's narcissism. Yes. There we go. Yeah. The Dark Triad. Oh, you'd have a ton of Machiavellian stuff in here, too. Ooh, well done. I like it. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, this is just all that dark psychology. I love it. And so enchantment spells of fifth level and higher just don't work. They fizzle when you try and cast them. All other spells function as if they were cast one level lower than normal. So you actually have to upcast all of your enchantment spells in order to make them function the way they're supposed to. Right. Next is invocation slash evocation. All evocation spells function as if they were cast one level higher. Yay! And the save DC against all of these spells is increased by one. So they hit harder, they're harder to resist, because brute power is designed to work well in Gehenna. Yeah, and again, this is just that whole very nasty, very brutish, thuggish, you know, the life of a person in Gehenna is short, brutish, and something I forget the rest of the quote, but yeah. I mean, this very much has that sort of mob boss sort of feel. That's the sort of vibe that you get out of this, is, you know, you have to be the most dangerous person in the room. Yeah, I'm thinking like that kind of like prison yard or playground bully, or even if you've seen the first of the remakes of Planet of the Apes, where they've got the apes in the research center, and they're all kind of fighting for that one spot. It is very primal, very animalistic. Mm -hmm. All right, next up is necromancy. Again, this is my perennial note that healing spells used to be considered necromancy, not evocation, and I think that they should remain necromancy, not evocation, because you're manipulating the energies of life and death. Yes. Stepping back off my soapbox. But you have to, <laughs> you have to keep that in mind for the functioning of how necromancy is affected on Gehenna. Correct. So all harmful necromantic spells deal one additional point of damage per damage die. Okay. All healing necromantic spells heal one less point per die you roll. Okay. So if you're upcasting a cure wounds to third level, it's going to be 3d8 minus 3. Spells that create or control undead function as if cast one level higher. All abilities that destroy or turn undead function as if the caster is one level lower. 
if you're kind of doing the Cairn stuff, as again, we're going to be getting more Dragonlance and Realms of Cairn things, pretty much for this, I would say all White Moon spells or all White spells would be one down, all Black obviously one up, and I think the Reds probably still stay even and neutral because that is their general MO. And again, so anything beneficial is going to be reduced. Anything harmful is going to be enhanced. Fairly straightforward, I think. But again, and it has to do with this realm. Just the innate nature of this realm is to tear things and people down. Absolutely, yeah. And the last area affected are elemental spells. Specifically, spells tied to the elements of earth and fire are especially powerful in Gehenna. So Imagine on the, that. On the first three layers where you have the active volcanoes, all earth and fire spells are cast as if two levels higher. I don't think that that's going to stack with the evocation buff, mainly because evocation and elemental magic were two separate things in second edition. Correct. So a fireball is not going to be three levels higher. It's only going to be two levels higher. Sorry, folks. (laughs) We tried. You will take your two levels and you will like it. So spells tied to the element of water only function on the first and fourth layers. So the first layer is the one where the river Styx is. It's the more temperate of the layers. It's still not a friendly place to be. You don't have plants growing. It's not a vacation by any stretch of the imagination, but it is more temperate. It is relatively comfortable by comparison to the other three layers. Relatively is a fairly broad forgiving term. (laughs) You aren't going to take ambient fire or cold damage simply by being in the layer. (laughs) That's what I mean by it is relatively Relatively. temperate. (laughs) But on the second and third layers, it is much hotter. And so water spells just don't work at all. On the fourth layer, water and air spells function, but they only operate as blasts of freezing steam. Snazzy. Okay, I can deal with that. And because the fourth layer is a dead volcano, fire spells don't work at all. Fire Nation just GTFO. Yep. All right. And so that's magic. There are understandably not a whole lot of powers in Gehenna. Gods. Deities. It is not a very popular place for gods to set up shop. The ones that do tend to show up here are often less powerful gods within their pantheons. And they set up shop in Gehenna to operate outside of the oversight of the other gods in their pantheon. Right. This is about as close as a godforsaken realm as you're going to find. <laughs> um, no, I think Pandemonium is still more. Yeah, you're right. I forgot. Yeah. Okay. This is a close second, though. Mm-hmm. And by and large, the gods that are here have this air of being the necessary evil. They do the bad things that have to be done in order for the Pantheon to continue to exist and to function the way that it needs to. They are the designated bad guys. Sometimes we all need a villain in our lives, boys and girls. <laughs> so most of the gods in Gehenna are from the non-human races. Some of the ones that are mentioned, Gaknalak, who is the kobold god of trickery. Okay. Squirik, who is a lesser god of rat folk. That's the first one I've heard of that one. That I'm going to have to look this one up. He sounds kind of interesting. It reminds me of the uh, Skavens from Warhammer. Yeah, I can see where that's coming from. One of them is uh, Melifleur, who is the dire lich lord. He is called Melif in 
third edition. It just got sort of shrunk in on itself. Yeah, they weren't good at pronouncing that French fleur. Fleur. He has his own little realm on, I think, the fourth layer where he does all sorts of necromantic stuff with all of his lich buddies and all of that. And we got Memnor, who is the god of cloud giants. That is one I would not expect on this plane, especially with the cloud giants, unless he was on the first level. But I mean, you think clouds, you're not thinking the hot forsaken lava place you're thinking i don't know just not here i haven't taken a look at his portfolio to see exactly what sort of philosophical cluster of stuff he's over gotcha i mean you do have the clouds of poisonous volcanic gases all over the place so he could be a very malicious individual right and if you're going on the fourth lane and you just have you know all your water magics you know bursts of frozen steam that's pretty much definition of a cloud in one sense or another it's just you know you think clouds you're thinking more airy spacey but yeah i guess i could see it working it's just i wasn't expecting that to show up yeah it does seem like an odd fit and i'd have to look into it a little bit more to try and understand why exactly he's here yeah the next one on the list is a really interesting one manzikorian the philosopher god of the illithid I can see this one. And he was specifically killed by Tenebris slash Orcus in the early stages of third edition. Because in the third edition manual of the planes, it mentions that Tenebris came in and killed him. And that his realm is slowly crumbling and falling apart because he's no longer there to maintain it. Okay. Another really interesting one is Shargus who is the Night Lord of the Orcs. And he has a whole lot of beef with Grumsh, which is why he is not in Acheron with the rest of the Orcish pantheon. And again, I can see that. And this would be a notable place. Again, I could see Orcs as patrons here. Again, you've got that very tribal, very... If they're not working in a tribe, then they are going to devolve into that might makes right, roll through the fist type thing. I can see that working here. A lot of backbiting and stuff. Yes, Absolutely. Next one, you're talking about Kryn and the Dragonlance setting. Sargonis, the god of cunning, treachery, and guile from Dragonlance, has a realm here. And again, where this realm is so much manipulation and backbiting, very kind of drowish, really. I could see a lot of drows in this realm, too honestly. But yeah, it's that plotting and maneuvering and trying to getting one up. Another form, if you're a Star Trek fan, kind of the Cardassians, you know, that very subtle. Because again, violence is there, but outright violence that's seen in front of everybody is kind of frowned upon. Another way to look at this would be, if you're a Harry Dresden fan, or the Dresden Files, kind of how the white court works, where yeah, might does make right, but you shouldn't be seen doing it outright. You should work through proxies and kind of manipulate your way to that kind of force. Absolutely, yeah. It's considered a faux pas to be seen actually using your mind. Enacting your will, yes. It's seen as a sign of weakness that you had to resort to using your might to do it. It was a failing in your intellectual abilities. Yes. Next up, we got two gods from the Forgotten Realms. One is Leviathar, the Maiden of Pain. And the other one is actually the son of the dead god Bane, Yaktu Zvim. I was going to see if you were going to pull it off or not. Well done. Well done. <laughs> <laughs> and apparently at the onset of second edition Planescape, he was being enough of a little shit that the other gods of Gehenna are actively considering banding together to knock him down a couple of pegs. I can see that. Yeah, that's... Do you understand how, (laughs) 
how big a dick you have to be in a plane where everyone is out for number one for everyone else to want to actually collaborate to knock you down a peg. So this person or this entity actually has a role in another very popular series. He went under the name Littlefinger. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. You can't tell me that Littlefinger wouldn't be enough of a shit that everyone would band together to kick him in the junk at least twice. Yeah, that is true. And again, if you want to get the idea of a persona or a personality, exactly that. That is a perfect everything was about him. If he helped you, it was to advance his own cause. And then he probably had like four tripwires for you to stumble across along the way so he could step over your corpse and get higher up the rung. Yeah, absolutely. And then the last two that are listed are Math Methonwi, who is the Celtic god of sorcery. I was told there'd be no maths. Well, there's two right there. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) And then the other one is Sung Cheng, who is a trickster thief of the Chinese pantheon slash the celestial bureaucracy, who resides in a location called the Teardrop Palace. And Sung Cheng is actually a fairly prominent deity in Gehenna in second edition. The Teardrop Palace is still a location in the third edition Manual of the Plains, but it doesn't have this god specifically mentioned as tied to ownership of it, primarily because they ended up stripping out all of the real world pantheons in third edition. So the Chinese pantheon, the Celtic pantheon, the Greeks and the Egyptians and the Sumerians and all of those gods that they pulled in pantheons from real world mythology, they stripped all of those back out in the transition from TSR to Wizards of the Coast. Right. And I don't know. It's good in a way as you're going to limit appropriation. It's bad because obviously there's a lot of stories you can do. I leave that open to the players, whether you're going to have the actual deities from the pantheons, if you have enough research or you want to do it, or if you just want something similar and a stand-in. I can go either way on that one. Yeah. It does make me sad that there are so many trickster gods on this plane because I do rather enjoy a good trickster god myself, though I don't think personally I would want to be on this plane. I wouldn't. I can appreciate the philosophy. I can appreciate the underhandedness. It would be fun to watch, but I don't think I would want to join in the games, as it were. <laughs> I am not a clever enough individual to prosper here. Nor am I. Like I enjoy watching things like this because my people skills are abysmal and I am terrible at it. And so it's kind of like I want to watch people far better than I who are masters at their craft do their thing. And maybe I can glean a little bit from it. But yeah, I would not do well on this plane. Okay, talking about the powers of Gehenna, you have to talk about the proxies, because all of these gods do have their various proxies. While they vary in degrees of subtlety and power, there are two things that every proxy in Gehenna has in common. They have a love for power, and they absolutely hate their rivals. Okay, stands to reason. And that sums up the mentality of Gehenna in a nutshell. It really does. You love having power yourself, and you hate everyone else who could potentially take it away from you. Or who has power that you don't have. Yeah. Yes. It is a very jealous sort of plane. Very much so, yeah. So two of the notable proxies that they have mentioned, one of them is Byralon Horinar, who is the proxy of Leviatar, the Maiden of Pain. She is by far the best known proxy throughout Gehenna. She carries a nine-headed whip and she studied torture in Bator. Oh my. Yeah, she studied with the chain devils 
and left Bator whenever she got better than her teachers. Oh. So yes, she is a substantial individual. That is a hard no for me. I'll pass. Thank you. Um, (laughs) I need a safe word. (laughs) So she roams Gehenna looking for petitioners who have escaped Leviathar's realm and, quote, recruiting wanderers who pass too close. Yeah, I'm going to pass on that one. That's a no for me. Yeah. The other set is... With Song Xiang, he has two notable proxies. It is a pair of Gareliths. So Gareliths are the fiends that are native to Carceri. Right. The two Gareliths that are proxies for Song Xiang are called Rock, who is a Kelubar, and Smol, who is a Ferastu. Oh, he tiny. So Rock and Smol. And it is <laughs> S-M-O-L, Smol. Too bad it's not Chunk. I wish it was Chunk and Smol. That'd be perfect. But yeah. <laughs> And they are constantly plotting against each other they're constantly trying to undermine one another they're constantly jockeying for the favor of their god and for those who can just stand back and watch the entire affair is apparently really funny well i mean you've got the lava flows i'm sure it's warm enough it'd be a great place to make some popcorn just kind of you know have it constantly going just kind of sit back and yeah <laughs> But yeah, that's like watching twins, like, you know, kind of as they're both hitting adolescence and they've got that terrible sibling rivalry. Oh, yeah. Oh, that'd be fun. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Now, this is the portion where we would normally talk about the Sigil faction that has set up shop in a plane. No one is actually daft enough to try and operate out of Gehenna. They're just like, that's a plane of nope. (laughs) That's a giant plane of nope, and we are not going to have any part of it. (laughs) The faction that would be most aligned with the ideals of the plane are the signers, the sign of the one who very much believe in everything that you get is earned. You have to be good enough to grab the things that you want and you have to be good enough to hold on to them and keep other people from taking them. Right. That is the whole ethos behind the philosophy of the signers. Very much the Hobbes and Locke philosophy of life. Like you can have as much as you can defend. Absolutely, yeah. But they don't have the evil intent inherent in Gehenna, which is why they choose not to operate out of Gehenna. I can't remember which plane they actually do operate out of. Oh, it was... We just covered him recently, I think. It wasn't Acheron. Acheron is the Mercy Killers. Right. I'm going to have to. It was the one right before that, I believe. We'll have to look up our notes. I've slept since then. (laughs) Yes. But yeah, so the factions of Gehenna are easy. There aren't any. Yeah. Done and done. Because everyone's out for themselves. They don't have the mentality to actually organize themselves together into a group to pursue a common goal. Right. Because there's too much backstabbing and backbiting and trying to want to. Again, it would be all chiefs and no Indians, quite literally. Yes, very much so. All right, last section, the Creatures of Gehenna. Dun, dun, dun. The biggest section in the second edition book covers the Yugoloths. These guys are kind of everywhere. They are. They are originally native to the Grey Waste, the Hades, but they have up and moved to Gehenna and set up shop and basically run the place. Okay. I'm not going to go through the Yugoloths because they have a whole meritocratic advancement structure that goes through, I think, like nine different forms of Yugoloths. And it's one of those things where, so basically what it is, is they all start off as the lowest rank and file Yugoloths who are individually more powerful physically than the ones above them. 
But Yugoloth society promotes cunning. It promotes politics. It is very much a, you don't use your might to get what you want. You use cunning to work around your opposition to get what you want. You position yourselves in a favorable position to get what you want without exerting yourself physically. Okay. And as they learn that concept, there are basically milestones where once you demonstrate that you have this cunning, someone from a higher rank brings you before basically a council and they give you a very grueling interview at the end of which they either determine that you are unworthy and they cull you or they determine that you're worthy in which case they take you to the fourth layer of Gehenna and they have this big ritual involving, you know, a ritual cleansing in the acidic snow that is there and a ritual sacrifice. And then you in your new Yugoloth form emerge from the corpse of your old form. Oh, very much a cocoon sort of split open and crawl out sort of deal. Gotcha. And at each stage, the benchmark for what knowledge you possess and what your abilities are is different. So you have to position yourself in a different way each time in order to get to the next level. And because there is so much complexity involved, I mean, it's like four pages in the book. So oh, I'm not no, I'm not going to go into that because we would be here. That'd take an entire episode in and of right. itself, just talking about Yugoloths. That's the second um, edition manual of the planes? That is the second edition Liber Malevolenti. It is the malevolent book. Okay. <laughs> it is the book that covers the evil planes. It sounds like some warm, fuzzy nighttime stories. It covers Carceri, Gehenna, and the Grey Wastes. Okay. So it's those three at the very bottom and all of the nastiness <laughs> involved in all of that. Nasty. Yeah. It, it is not a pleasant location to be. <laughs> but I do like that because Yugoloths in and of themselves are a neutral evil race. Right. They practice evil for the sake of evil, but they definitely have that mentality to them because of their placement here in Gehenna. They have that we are doing the necessary thing that is hard for the sake of everyone. Right. The idea is that they are keeping the blood war going between the devils and the demons to keep them occupied so that they don't go anywhere. Right. That is the concept that they try to emphasize is that that's why they bounce back and forth between sides with their mercenary forces to shift the balance of the blood war one way or another just to keep it going. Right. There's that concept in politics. You can see it globally. You can see it actually in the prison systems, a lot of way they set things up. You take two factions that have a bit of strife and you keep them constantly at odds with each other. So they use all their time and resources fighting each other because if they were ever able to join forces and work as a cohesive unit, they would be too strong. And it's a way to keep your enemies divided. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And that is what they advocate as their position. Okay. And there is a location that we're going to talk about next week where the general of Gehenna, who is the Ultraloth, the top tier Yugoloth, they are the most powerful of the Ultraloth. So it is the most powerful Yugoloth the ultra, of ultra. all the Yugoloths. He is in command of this walking city that has a lot of impressive fighting capability to it. Okay. The apocryphal story is that 
if this fortress were to ever actually enter the blood war on one side or the other, the side that it entered on would win. Gotcha. It is just that powerful of an entity and the general of Gehenna themselves are basically a demigod at this point. That's how powerful they have become. Nice. And that is something that we're going to touch on a little bit more next week whenever we're talking about individual locations and the different layers. But yeah, so yes, the Yugoloths are a very substantial portion of Gehenna. A lot of the powerful entities within Gehenna actively try not to antagonize the Yugoloths because they don't want the Yugoloths to come knocking on their door. Gotcha. No, that makes perfect sense. And also because of the positioning of Gehenna between Bator and Hades, with Hades being the main battlefield of the Blood War, Gehenna has a lot of fighting going on between the devils and the demons. So you're going to find devils and demons both here. Because it borders Bator, the devils usually have the upper hand because they are closer to their supply lines. They have shorter yeah, supply lines. Than you were saying? Oh, yeah, I was going to say, and if I'm correct, the plane leans a little bit more towards, it's neutral, but it leans a little more towards the lawful anyway, yes. which would also favor, you know, obviously the devils over the demons within the nature of the realm. Yes, absolutely. All right. So now let's get into some of the crazy monsters that were present in second edition. Crazy monsters. I don't know if they made it into third edition or not, but there's three of them and they are terrifying. Well, two of them are terrifying. The first one are the Slasraths. I mentioned them briefly in passing earlier in the episode. They used to just be these simple, slimy, disgusting worm creatures that were native to Gehenna that would bore through the stone and would come out and eat people and whatnot. But then a sorcerer who was a slave to the Yugoloths named Jehanu the Flayed ended up magically manipulating these creatures because he was tasked with changing these creatures to make a flying mount for the Yugoloths. That was his directive. That was his end goal. He became Jehanu the Flayed because some of them got loose. Ooh. And so his Yugoloth master flayed him because some of them got loose. That's a hell of a punishment. <laughs> yeah. So... As I mentioned, they were originally created to be used by the Yugoloths as flying mounts. The creature, as it is now after the manipulation, resembles a flying ray. So going back to last week's episode, where we were talking about the Incuba, that flying spelljammer, manta ray, psychic sucking creature. It's going to have a very similar feel to that. I like it. I am very excited to see the write-up for the Incuba. Oh, yes. Which, by the time this episode comes out, should be up on Patreon, by the way. Excellent. Patreon.com slash taste. It'll be free. Go check well, it out. Plug. <laughs> so it has a small toothy maw, razor-tipped wings, and a long whip-like tail ending in a nasty poisonous barb. Because of course it does. Because Steve Irwin. So they have a flyby attack where basically they fly into you. And in second edition, it was 3d6 damage from them just flying into you. Oh, wow. Because they are a large creature. That means they're big enough for the more brutish, more you know, muscular Yugoloths to actually ride. Right. So yes, they are very powerful creatures. In second edition, they also had a rule where if they would hit your character without the armor that they're wearing, then you had to roll a save 
for the structural integrity of your armor or your shield. Oh my. And if your item failed that save, the item was destroyed and you got hit anyway. Damn. That is something that 5th edition is largely taken out of that I kind of miss is armor and item breakdown. Like yeah, you get it well, with some acid effects, but it doesn't really occur too terribly frequently anymore, which is a little disappointing. It's hard to keep track of. It is. I, I understand exactly why they do it. And that is something that you can do at your table as a house rule. But just in general, it's very difficult to keep track of that sort of thing. No, I get that. But yeah, like your shield should have hit points. I'm just putting that out there. And again, that's my little soapbox. Okay, I'll I'll step off now. (laughs) All right. Once it hits a creature, it will hover over them because it can hover because it flies and it will use its mouth to bite them and it will stab them with its tail. Uh, It's a 1d6 bite and a 2d4 tail. And because the barb is poisoned, you had to make a saving throw against the poison every single time it hit you with its tail. Oh, and poisons were a lot more vicious in second edition. Okay, so the poison on this one in particular, each time you failed your save, you take a cumulative minus one penalty on attack and damage rolls, ability checks, and saving throws. That's bad, but that's not as bad as it could be. It's not like you're reducing your con score or anything like that, like a lot of them used to do. I mean, you take a minus one to your constitution saving throw every single time you fail. Right. So no, it makes it, the, it makes it harder to save the more times you get hit. Right. No, but like some of the early second edition, it particularly like would do the stat reductions. So like it would reduce your strength score or like your con score. And if your strength or your con hit zero, you were just dead. Well, I would say that this is worse because it affects all of Everything. your abilities. Gotcha. Yeah, I can see that. And if you hit six stacks of poison, you die. Yep. That sounds about right. <laughs> if you wanted to take this as it is and translate it one for one to fifth edition i would have each time you fail your saving throw against the poison you get a rank of exhaustion because that goes into the flavor of what it is because the more poison you have you get more sluggish you get more clumsy it's harder to do things yeah, no, I like that. That fits really, really And it well. keeps that if you hit six stacks, you die. Right. And I would still keep the poison effect where, you know, attacks against you have advantage and stuff like that, too, in fifth edition, just because mm, this is not. I don't know. It's not that attacks against you have advantages. Your attacks have disadvantage. Disadvantage. Oh, okay. But yeah, it would still be, you know, functionally the same thing. Mm-hmm. And then because as you get more ranks, it starts off with your ability checks are at disadvantage. And then you have your movement speed and then your saving throws are a disadvantage and it just compounds the more times you get hit. And it would allow you within the confines of the fifth edition rules to still have a if you get six stacks of poison, you die because at rank six of exhaustion, you die. You You do you a dead. Yep. All right. Second creature are called Linquas. Linquas are short squat humanoids that are more construct than creature they were created by the god sung chang they all appear to be male but are actually sexless and they have pale pocked flesh broken by tufts of bristly green hair they sound lovely if you have seen the picture of the zvarts it's either in volo's guide to monsters or mordenkainen's tome of foes near the end these sort of short squat blue humanoids that have great big heads they're only about 
two and a half, three feet tall, and they got these long, gangly arms. They kind of look like troll dolls. That's kind of what these look like. Okay. The face on them looks more like the aliens from Avatar. Okay. The James Cameron Avatar, not the yeah. good animated series one. Right. <laughs> They're also immortal and do not age because they are creations of a god. So There you go. And because they were created by a god, they get to draw their power from their god in the way that clerics do, getting access to the following spells once each per day. Detect lie, detect magic, free action, no alignment, spider climb, stone shape, and tongues. Not a bad list to have. And they can also increase their strength to 19 for 10 rounds per day, not necessarily consecutive. These definitely have a feel of being a player race option. I could see that. Yeah, you'd have to work with these a bit, but definitely. Because whenever they're in Gehenna, they're immune to all of the effects of the plane. But whenever they happen to be away from Gehenna, they're reduced to having resistance to acid, cold, and fire. Fair enough. I'm okay with that. And because their creator is a god of thieves, they're also effectively second level rogues. So in second edition, they got their backstab, would be a sneak attack, and they have proficiency with many of the thief skills. So like picking locks and climbing and all of those sorts of things. No, I like that. I mean, again, so you've got a thief cleric blend. I'm kind of liking it. I want a thief cleric. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Uh, most of the Linquas serve Songsheng as guards or servants within his teardrop palace. But because he is a very temperamental individual, if they displease him and they're lucky, they get exiled out of the palace into the wastes of Gehenna. But even the ones that get exiled don't tend to stray very far. And they sort of organize into this sort of communal defense perimeter for the palace almost. See, with this, I could see Sung Chang being a very, like, temperamental, very uh, sanguine type personality. And so he he would cast someone out just as quickly as, oh, you're there, or you did good here, you can come back in. Oh, you pissed me off again today, I'm cashing you back out. And so, yeah, if you stay close, he may forgive you just as quickly as he exiled you. He would probably just cast you out and make another one to replace you. Potentially. That seems to be more in the flavor of how he actually does it. (laughs) Okay. Some end up breaking their connection to Songsheng and leaving Gehenna. They usually end up in Sigil and they succumb to a sudden bout of free will and the novelty of alcohol, which gives them this sort of series of misadventures. Chaos, woohoo. Absolutely, yeah. That's what we need. We need a Sigil adventure with just a bunch of these guys running them up. <laughs> <laughs> and those who break their connection with Songsheng lose their divine connection. They lose their divinely drawn abilities. So they would lose all of their innate spells. They would lose their ability to boost their strength. They would probably lose most of their resistances that they would get to the effects of the plane. This is why I would say that they would probably work very well as a player race option. I could see that. Because once they break away, they don't have all of those uber powers that they would get within Gehenna while they are bound to Songsheng. Yeah, no, I like that. I think these would be really fun and interesting to do in such a way. I kind of like the idea of a cleric thief as well. Kind of like a domain of trickery cleric would fit really well with a lot of these. And I'm sure a lot of these do wind up going that route as well. And there is a story within the entry for the Linquas within the books 
for Planescape talking about this one in particular. And the way that the story goes is he was a very loyal servant of Sung Shang and was one of Sung Shang's favorites. And one day Sung Shang takes him into this wing of the palace where the Linquas aren't allowed to be. And Sung Shang shows him this portal and says that this portal leads to Sigil and starts talking about all of the great things that are in Sigil. And then they just leave. And that plants that seed in this particular Linqua's head. And he can't stop thinking about this portal. And then one day he can't stand it anymore. And he just goes and he goes through the portal. And he ends up in Sigil. And he ends up finding alcohol. And having a bunch of series of misadventures. And getting a bit of a reputation for himself within Sigil. And then after a long series of adventures and misadventures. He gets that longing. Because he doesn't have that connection to Sung Shang anymore. He doesn't have those divine gifts anymore. And it, it describes the feeling of having that connection almost as an addiction so that whenever you sever that connection, you end up going into something akin to withdrawal. This is part of the reason why they are so drawn to alcohol because it is self-medicating, basically. It's them seeking something to fill that void. Gotcha. And so this particular Linqua ends up finding his way back to Gehenna. And he goes back to the Teardrop Palace and attempts to supplicate himself and ask for forgiveness and be taken back into Sung Cheng's good graces. And Sung Cheng welcomes him back in with a smile and then instantly destroys him. Oh, well then. And from that point on, every single Linqua that has ever broken free from Sung Cheng has never returned to Gehenna. Makes a good example. There you go. Yeah. You, if you leave, you're gone. But because of this almost addiction to divine power, a lot of them will actually end up seeking out other gods to become servants to. And they end up establishing that same sort of divine connection to a new god, often changing their alignment to match their new god. Nice. So you could end up, say, having one of these Linquas fall in with Paylor. Yeah. And become neutral good. Yeah. You know, it, it, it all just depends on how they end up feeling because now they have true free will. Because right. in Gehenna, free will is this big illusion. It's really just the will of whoever has the most power to exert their will. Correct. And so they end up breaking free of that and they actually have free will. And I really enjoy these because they emphasize this fact that the creatures native to these outer planes don't have free will. Right. Their wills are bound to the mandates and the atmosphere of the plane that they're native to. And so once they break away from that, they actually get free will and they can choose. And that's part of the reason that they are so envious of these mortals coming in from the material plane is because they have free will. And it's why the mortals from the material plane are so negatively affected by different aspects of the plane whenever they go there, because suddenly the plane is exerting a will on them that they're not used to because the material plane has no will of its own. Right. But yeah, so that's the Linqua, and that's my philosophy debate for, uh, no, I like it. for all of that. And now we get to the pure nightmare fuel. I like them. These are called files. They are incorporeal creatures made from columns of steam and poisonous volcanic gases. They are considered undead elementals. They have vaguely humanoid forms with these long spindly limbs and black empty eyes. Standard files tend to have sort of a green and purple hue to them from the gases. The Yugoloths refer to them as vaporous horrors. And the Linquas call them lingering deaths. 
Oh my, that's a great name. And they view any living creature they come across as a food source. They are nearly immune to being charmed or compelled. They have no higher power that they serve. And they have no allies, despite seeming to be intelligent. Floating mists of chaos. I love it. And according to a lore snippet within the description, there was a Cambian sorcerer named Regilith who once attempted to communicate with one of these things using the ESP spell. So that would be basically it'd be Rory's telepathic bond. Right. I mean, using mental psionic ability to communicate directly into the mind of another creature. That's going to end poorly. <laughs> and before he passed into, quote, utterly incomprehensible insanity, he muttered a few understandable phrases regarding undead lords of brass, spirits of long dead wind dukes, and a melded prison of steam. Do you know what that says to me? This says to me that somebody took the spiritual essence of an afrit and the spiritual essence of a djinn and mashed them together and just dropped them here. I can see that. Because the melded prison of steam. Yeah. You know, the para-elemental plane of steam exists between... You know, that's one of the quasi-elemental. I'm thinking of the plane of ash. Ash yeah. sits between fire and air. Air, yeah. But Undead Lords of Brass, that suggests an afrit yes. and some sort of necromantic ritual. The Spirits of Long Dead Wind Dukes, that also okay. suggests some sort of necromantic ritual. And either the Vati, who were the actual Wind Dukes. Or the djinn. Yeah, the I was going to say, going way back to our episode where we talked about, you know, the plane of air, and we talked about the Ifrit, that prison they have that nobody knows exactly what's inside. Mm -hmm. This could be some patrons or some prisoners that were killed there or somehow melded in there, maybe like a whole FMA experimental type thing, and then dumped here because it failed or didn't work the way they wanted it to. But yeah, I'm definitely getting that whole gin Ifrit feel with this too, definitely. It seems more likely to me because there is a lich demigod here. Yeah. And they specifically are engaging in all these different necromantic studies with their other lich buddies. This seems to me like some really powerful necromancers are drawing spirits of Jin and Ifrit out of the elemental planes, bringing them into Gehenna and just sort of mashing them together and just wrapping the whole thing in duct tape. Yeah, and again, I think Melifor would be a huge topless suspect on this one. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. I like it. I like it. I like it. So the files tend to roam in pairs, and it is suggested that... Each one has half. <laughs> well, it's suggested that they are required to exist in pairs, because if you ever find an individual one, one that has lost its partner, eventually it comes unraveled and will eventually dissipate. You know what this kind of reminds me of, too, is the um, Archons in StarCraft, where you'd have the two Templar that meld and they became this big gaseous entity that could wreck a bunch of stuff, but they were always paired. And again, they took their psionic powers and they melded their psionic powers and they lost most of their physical form and they were just basically this ball of psionic kick-ass energy. But again, they were always paired. They were always this big thing, so you never saw one individual. Right. So... The files are incredibly dangerous creatures. I'd, I'd imagine. The baseline file in second edition was worth 10,000 experience points, Oof. which is, I think, about on par with a green slot, maybe a little bit more than a green slot. 
Uh, it's not quite a death slot, which I think was somewhere in the neighborhood of 13,000. Yeah. But yeah, so we're looking at something in the CR 10 to 12 range. Yeah, again, these aren't something that you're going to go and push around too easily. And that's individuals. Right. They're each worth that. And they always come in pairs. And because they have an average intelligence of 8 to 10, they will function as a pair. They will operate tactically with one another to engage in what they're going to do. So for starters, they have a heat aura around them. So anyone who gets within 10 feet automatically takes 1d6 fire damage every round. They also have an aura of poisonous gas. So anyone within 50 feet of them has to make a saving throw at the start of each of their turns to avoid suffocating on the gas. If they fail their saving throw, they fall unconscious. And if they stay within the area, if the file doesn't move off and it's not going to, they will die within 2d4 rounds. They will suffocate on all of these noxious gases and just die. And in melee combat, they lash out with their long, gangly, spindly arms. Each arm deals 1d10 fire damage. Ouch. And if they both hit, they grapple you and they drag you inside of their form, sort of engulfing you the way that a water or air elemental would. Would. Dealing their full damage, so the 2d10 from both arms and the 1d6 from the fire aura. Just dealing that automatically every turn that you're engulfed. And, in second edition, they had an energy drain. Nice. So they would start sucking your levels. Oh my... Yeah, the, yeah. people wide burst from these things. They are going to ruin your day. Yes. So they are immune to fire, poison, and acid, and they are resistant to lightning, and they are also immune to weapons that are not at least plus two magical weapons. Damn. They have a 25% magic resistance and have a 50% chance to break or resist mind control spells. So anything from the enchantment school that would charm. There is a very special term for these features. That's called TPK. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. They are, however, vulnerable to air magic. So they can be held at bay with a wall of wind, and spells like gust of wind deal extra damage. Right. I can see that, where they're mostly gaseous. Yeah, gust of wind specifically deals an extra 3d6 damage to them. Nice. And then gust of wind, that's an evocation spell, correct? Yes. So you'd get that level up, you know, you'd get that. So if you cast it out like second or third level, you'd get, you know, the extra level on that. So this would definitely be your go to. Mm-hmm. And despite rumors that claim that they are an undead sort of elemental, they are immune to the priest slash cleric ability that lets them turn undead. Sweet Jesus. Yes, they're immune to turn undead. Yeah, those just big old bags of nope. But wait, there's more. There is a rare variant called the Harvester of Flame. Ooh. Great name. These, by the way, are worth 12,000 experience points. They don't have a poison gas aura around them, and they appear sort of red in color as opposed to the green-purple. Okay. Uh, many of them also appear to have this sort of white-hot core at the center of them. Their heat aura is doubled to 2d6. Each of their arms deal 2d10 fire damage. And they have a 150-foot breath weapon that deals 66 fire damage. Sweet Jesus. Top it all off, they ignore resistance to fire, and they treat fire immunity as fire resistance. That's crazy. And they are exclusively found in the company of a pair of normal files. Yeah, your party just, if you see that, just turn and run away because you're not beating that. It's not happening. Not unless you've got a whole bunch of firepower. 
Yeah, I mean that. I mean, that's even, if you're that's talking a level twenty party, maybe. But yeah, uh, you might be able to pull it off with like a level fifteen, sixteen party. All three of them. You might be able to pull that off with a level fifteen, sixteen party. Ah, uh, depending on how heavily you go with your spellcasters, I don't see a lot of that. It would depend a lot on gear too, because they're going to get normal damage from cold. I mean, if you're able to use cold. Yeah. That is a thing. You have to be able to use cold or wind. Yeah, um, so wind damage, necrotic damage, radiant damage, force yeah. damage. Right. All of those are going to function normally. You're going to have to have plus two weapons on your melee characters or your physical um, damage characters. Any spells that deal magical, bludgeoning, piercing, slashing damage okay. would theoretically work. You're going to have to have fire resistance and poison resistance. Otherwise, just the auras are going to wipe a party pretty quickly. Yeah. How many hit points do they have run? Um, let me look because I happen to have that pulled up. They have nine hit dice in second edition. Yeah, the, the, these are wiping a party. These are just straight wiping the floor with the party. They're going to turn your party into a mop and they're going to clean the floor with your entire damn party. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be bad times. So understandably, most creatures of the lower planes, including Yugoloths, devils and demons avoid them whenever possible yeah you think primarily because their main way to maneuver around such creatures is to use charm effects to control them yeah and basically take control of them and send them away and they can't really do that with these because they are very resistant to that sort of exactly night hags have been known to make deals with them occasionally. Interesting. Basically, they can trade them larvae in return for safe passage or for small favors like, hey, I've got these two or three gareliths that are chasing me. How about you take care of them for me? Yeah, it's like the story of the Billy Goats crossing the bridge. Billy Goats Gruff, here, go yeah. get my brother. He's bigger. Great. Yes. Great. Yes. Yeah, these things are terrifying. And sometimes they will have lone steam methods as just sort of clingers on, just sort of hanging around them. Just because. Just because. They largely ignore these methods, probably because they see them as harmless carrion feeders. They just sort of come along and pick over whatever is left after they've finished sucking all of the life essence out of the creature. Because once it's a corpse, they don't have any use for it anymore. Right. And so these methods are able to come through afterwards and pick over the bodies and find all of the treasure that the files have no interest in and just sort of run off with them and stash them away somewhere. That's crazy. Yeah. So yeah, that's the files. That's the last of them. That's the nightmare fuel. Yeah. And like uh, said, those are those are nope on a table. Nope. Yeah, those are mean and nasty, and I kind of want to translate them now. <laughs> so we may end up having some files in awesome. our write-up. No, I do want to see the write-up. I don't want to fight them on a table. I do want to see the write-up. <laughs> All right. And that's pretty much going to take care of today's episode. Awesome. Um, next week, we're going to be having our interview with Josh from Lone Colossus Games. He's coming on. It will be tonight as the episode comes out, May 25th at 9 p.m. on our Twitch, coming on to talk about his upcoming Kickstarter project for Injuries and Vile Deeds. Very excited. His fifth edition supplement to add some extra tactical stuff to your fifth edition game. Awesome. We're going to be talking with him 9 p.m. Eastern time later tonight. That is May 25th. So join us on our Twitch account, twitch.tv slash taste. I promise I will have all of the technical stuff arranged so that way we can actually hear everything 
this time, unlike the Tabletop Journeys interview where the Twitch stream had no audio and I was recording through my webcam, apparently. Oops. (laughs) Yeah. So we're going to get that all straightened out. Fantastic. And then the following week, we're going to go into part two of Gehenna, where we talk about all of the individual locations and all of the individual layers. And that will be great. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So thank you, everyone, for joining us for another one of our longer episodes here going through Gehenna. If you have any comments, suggestions, or ideas, please send us an email under commontaste at gmail.com or send us a direct message through our Twitter account at UCT Homebrew. You can also find us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitch, TikTok, and YouTube. Just search under Common Taste. You can also find us on Patreon, as I mentioned earlier, patreon.com slash undercommontaste. Our most recent write-up is going to be the Incuba, which we created with the guys from Tabletop Journeys last week. It was a whole lot of fun to do. I'm really excited to show it to all of you. All of our write-ups go up onto our Patreon account. Most of them are free. Some of them are patron exclusive. The most recent patron exclusive one was, of course, our Urban Ranger variant class, which again, is a whole lot of fun. I encourage you to go and check it out. All of our patron exclusive content is available to everyone, regardless of patron tiers. So you can pledge the $3 level and still get access to everything. Finally, we are on Discord. You can find a link to our Discord in the show notes. Please come over and chat with us. We'd love to hear from you. Thank you for listening to our podcast. You can find our other podcasts wherever you find your podcasts normally. We're on uh, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Google, Podbean. As always, please subscribe and give us a rate and review. This helps increase our visibility and lets us know what you want to hear more of. And recently, we are now on TuneIn Radio, Podchaser, and I think Samsung Podcasts. Excellent. There's some new platforms that were available through our host Podbean. So we are able to get on more platforms and hopefully be easier to find. So excellent. And if we're not on your podcatcher of choice, please let us know and we will do everything in our power to get on that aggregator. So thank you once more for listening. Stay safe, everyone. We'll see you next week whenever we're talking with Josh from Lone Colossus Games. Happy gaming. Thank you for listening to another episode of Undercommon Taste. You can find links to all of our social media accounts, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and Twitch, as well as our Patreon and Discord channel in the show notes. Our theme song is Massacre Anne, written and performed by Mary Crowell and used with permission. You can find more of her work at marycrowell.bandcamp.com or on Patreon at patreon.com slash drmarycrowell. Our logo was illustrated by David Sutherland. You can find him on Instagram at willex underscore 73, or on DeviantArt at DeviantArt.com slash David Sutherland. Thanks again for listening. Stay safe. We'll see you again next week.